Good evening. I'm Jeff Bennett. Amna Nawaz is on assignment. On the news hour tonight, President Biden vows to respond to a deadly drone attack on a U.S. base in Jordan and blames an Iranian-backed militia for the latest escalation. The Secretary General of NATO discusses the uncertain future of Western support for Ukraine as the beleaguered nation's war with Russia grinds on. And the Biden administration cites climate concerns as it puts the brakes on a major liquid natural gas project and pauses new exports. Welcome to the News Hour. The White House says President Biden is considering options to strike back against the Iran-backed militia that killed three American soldiers in Jordan yesterday. From Yemen to Iraq to Syria and now Jordan, American forces are engaging Iranian-supported groups across the region. Nick Schifrin starts our coverage. It's in a remote desert corner at the intersection of three countries, and the attack on Tower 22 today led to a U.S. vow of revenge. The president and I will not tolerate attack on U.S. forces, and we will take all necessary actions to defend the U.S. and our troops. We will respond decisively to any aggression, and we will hold responsible the people who attacked our troops. U.S. military and defense officials say an Iranian-backed militia fired a single explosive drone that landed in soldiers' barracks and got through the base's air defense because it was misidentified as a U.S. drone. The three soldiers killed were U.S. Army Reservist Sergeant William Rivers, Specialist Kennedy Sanders, and Specialist Brianna Moffett. Bases in Iraq and Syria have been targeted repeatedly since mid-October, but this weekend's was the first in Jordan. Tower 22 is located on the Jordan side of a remote demilitarized zone where Jordan, Iraq, and Syria meet. To the north is the U.S. Al-Tanf garrison in Syria. It relies on Tower 22 for logistics and other support. For years, Al-Tanf has functioned as a launching point for special forces combating ISIS militants and monitors a weapon shipping route along a highway leading into Baghdad. The base has been the target of previous strikes by Iranian-backed militias. It's also right next to the vast Rukban refugee camp. At its peak, more than 100,000 internally displaced Syrians were crowded there, seeking refuge from ISIS, but blocked by Jordan from crossing the border. We do not seek another war. We do not seek to escalate. At the White House today, National Security Spokesman John Kirby said the U.S. will respond in a way that does not escalate but acknowledges Iran's role. We'll do that on our schedule, in our time, and we'll do it in the manner of the president's choosing as commander-in-chief. We'll also do it fully cognizant of the fact that these groups, backed by Tehran, have just taken the lives of American troops. Iran's foreign ministry today said militia groups act on their own. The Islamic Republic of Iran does not interfere in the decisions of the resistance groups on how to support the Palestinian nation or defend themselves and their people against any aggression and occupation. And Nick Schifrin joins us now. So, Nick, what is the administration weighing as it considers its response? U.S. officials obviously won't telegraph uh, the punch, uh, as, as they put it. Uh, but uh, until this weekend, they have been uh, very selective. In Iraq and Syria, they've responded to the 150-plus attacks before this weekend by going after things like uh, weapons storage facilities, missiles, drones, factories. They've tried to calibrate it so that they don't actually kill members of the militia so as, in their words, not to escalate. Same in Yemen. The targets uh, over about 10 rounds of U.S. and U.K. strikes have again been missiles and drones that the, Houthi, the Houthis have been using to fire at ships and not trying to attack Houthi command and control with senior Houthi leadership. But this is a different size of attack, as you said and as the package said, uh, and the U.S. response is likely to be larger. And there are critics of the administration out today saying it must be much larger. Uh, we heard from Senator Roger Wicker, the ranking member on the Senate Armed Services Committee. He wants to see a strike directly at, quote, Iranian targets and its leadership. Uh, Mike Rogers, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Republican uh, criticized President Biden, saying his fear of escalation has morphed into a doctrine of appeasement. So there is this argument that says the administration must go a lot farther, but the administration officials I talked to say exactly what you heard just John mm. Kirby say, look, we do not want this to turn into a regional war, therefore we will continue to try and calibrate our response so it doesn't escalate further. 
On another matter, Nick, we know that the CIA director, Bill Burns, met over the weekend with his Israeli and Egyptian counterparts in a meeting that was mediated by Qatar. What, what came of that meeting? They were talking about a hostage deal. Right, right. So this is about releasing hostages held by Hamas in Gaza in exchange for stopping the war, at least temporarily. And that group that you just laid out has been an effective one. They're the ones who brought about the November ceasefire that led to the release of more than 100 hostages. These are four men who have met many times uh, before. There you see uh, Bill Burns on the left, the Qatari prime minister, uh, and the uh, Israeli and Egyptian intelligence chiefs. Uh, now, and they believe that they have made progress. And the progress is that they have an outline that they believe Israel accepts uh, that would allow for the release of women and children for, and in exchange for a certain amount of time for a ceasefire. Uh, officials won't give the exact details. And then that round would essentially lead to a second round of more releases. And then the final round would be uh, Israeli soldiers and dead bodies. And again, what U.S. officials hope is that if they can make progress on that deal, which is a temporary ceasefire for the release of hostages as well as the release of Palestinians detained in Israel, that could lead to a more permanent ceasefire and what the U.S. is really hoping for progress uh, across the region, namely normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia and steps toward a two-state hmm. solution for the Palestinians. So more to come on that front. Meantime, the UN agency that delivers aid to Gaza stands accused of being infiltrated by Hamas. As I understand it, Israel has created a dossier about that. What does it say? Yeah, the dossier was attained by PBS NewsHour, uh, and uh, it's quite damning about UNRWA. Uh, it says that 13 UNRWA staffers in total were involved in October the 7th, and you see there four UNRWA staff were involved in kidnapping on October the 7th, six UNRWA staff infiltrated into Israel. Uh, it also says Hamas fighters have used UNRWA facilities as hideouts to conceal weapons within UNRWA equipment. Uh, and there's also longer term collaboration between UNRWA and Hamas in this dossier. Uh, Hamas built tunnels under the headquarters of UNRWA, under an UNRWA school, uh, and that in total 10% of all of UNRWA uh, is actually Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, another militant group that is about 1,200 of 13,000 people. But here's the problem. UNRWA is the only game in town when it comes to delivering humanitarian aid. The U.S. has stopped humanitarian assistance, sorry, has stopped funding for UNRWA temporarily, but U.S. and quietly Israeli officials are acknowledging, and you see how much UNRWA does right there, these tent cities, all of the medical help that Gazans need right now, the freezing of funding, Jeff, is expected to be temporary, and U.S. officials are trying to make sure that it's as short as possible so that UNRWA uh, activities are actually not stopped. Nick Schifrin, thank you for that reporting and for unpacking all of those developments. We appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. In the day's other headlines, the Israeli military announced it has killed more than 2,000 Palestinian gunmen in days of heavy fighting around Khan Yunis in southern Gaza. Israeli forces also launched a new assault on Gaza City after pulling back in recent weeks. At the same time, Hamas fired a new volley of rockets toward Israeli cities. But the Israeli defense minister told troops that the offensive is working. <laughs> Naturally, terrorists will remain. We will fight in terror hotspots, and it will take months. On the other hand, they don't have supplies, they don't have ammunition, they don't have reinforcements. We've already eliminated at least a quarter of Hamas's terrorists, and there's a similar number wounded. Also today, the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry reported more than 26,600 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza to date. It does not differentiate between civilians and militants. There's a new disclosure about the Alaska Airlines plane that lost a door panel earlier this month. The Wall Street Journal and others report that Boeing increasingly believes workers may have left off some bolts during production. The panel blew out of the 737 MAX 9 jet as it was flying roughly three miles above Portland, Oregon. Most of the MAX 9s are still being inspected. The Supreme Court of Pennsylvania ruled today that access to abortion is a fundamental right under the state's constitution. And it said a state ban on Medicaid paying for abortions appears to be unconstitutional. But it sent the case back to a lower court for a definitive ruling. Meantime, the U.S. Supreme Court announced it will hear arguments on limiting access to the abortion drug Mifepristone on March 26th. A Hong Kong court has ordered Chinese real estate giant Evergrande to liquidate after failing to restructure $300 billion in debt. 
It's the most heavily indebted of dozens of Chinese developers that buckled under government pressure to rein in red ink. Traders around the world said they're watching for possible ripple effects in the global economy. Genau, schlechte Nachrichten erreichen uns heute Morgen aus China. There is bad news coming out of China. And that obviously rings alarm bells with capital markets around the world. In theory, the impact could be huge because the company's debt load is very, very large and because it has a worldwide network. Evergrande's collapse could also put new pressure on China's already slowing economy. The top court for international sports disqualified Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva today from the 2022 Beijing Olympics. It followed a two-year doping investigation. Valieva had led her team to a gold medal, but her positive test for a banned medication was revealed hours later. Now the Russians will likely be stripped of their win, and the U.S. will get the gold medal instead. A Japanese moon lander is back in action for now after it landed wrong side up. The country's first lunar mission made a rough landing on January 20th, and its solar panels were unable to catch sunlight. Today, officials said the sun's position has shifted enough to charge the batteries and let the lander analyze rocks and take some pictures. On Wall Street, stocks got the week off to a running start. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 224 points to close at 38,333. The Nasdaq rose 172 points. The S&P 500 added 37 points. And Pulitzer Prize-winning writer N. Scott Amade has died at his home in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He was a pioneer of modern Native American literature, and his culture and oral tradition shaped his novels, essays, and poetries. His debut novel, House Made of Dawn, won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction back in 1969. And Scott Mamaday was 89 years old. Still to come on the NewsHour, Tamara Keith and Amy Walter break down the latest political headlines. A psychiatrist advocates for reforming America's approach to gun safety. And an effort to honor the music written by prisoners at Auschwitz. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine will soon enter its third year. Now, U.S. support for Ukraine is in question because of Republican resistance on Capitol Hill. NATO Secretary General is here in Washington this week, and he spoke with our Nick Schifrin from the Pentagon a short time ago. Secretary General Jan Stoltenberg, welcome back to the News Hour. Thanks very much. I want to start uh, on the front line in Ukraine. Here's what Celeste Wallander, one of the top U.S. defense officials who work on Ukraine, uh, told journalists last week. We have heard reports from the Ukrainian government that they have concerns that units are not, um, do not have the stocks and the stores of ammunition that they require. From your perspective today, how short is Ukraine of the weapons it already needs? So they need more uh, weapons, uh, uh, and uh, uh, in particular, they need uh, more uh, ammunition and, uh, and uh, spare parts and sustainment. And that's exactly why it is important that uh, the United States, but also all other allies, commit to uh, long-term uh, support to, to Ukraine and ensure that uh, there's a steady flow of ammunition, spare parts, uh, weapons to Ukraine. There are long-term American contracts that will be going to Ukraine for the next couple of years, but the uh, task at hand in Washington is that Congress is blocking the $60 billion that the administration wants to send Ukraine weapons today. Um, at this point, do, what do you believe NATO members are able and willing to do, given that the U.S. right now cannot send further weapons short-term to Ukraine? Also, I believe that all allies, also uh, the United States, uh, will uh, continue to provide support to Ukraine. The U.S. has uh, demonstrated leadership, uh, uh, provided unprecedented support to Ukraine. Uh, but the reality is that actually European allies have also really stepped up. And if you uh, take them all together, European allies and Canada, the total support from uh, European allies and Canada is actually bigger than the support from uh, the United States. Uh, and then I, uh, uh, I see that there is actually broad support for continued support, uh, also in the United States, in the Congress for uh, support to, to Ukraine. The challenge is, of course, that this is linked to another important issue, the, the situation on the, on the border. It's not for me to go into that discussion, but I just hope that there is a way to, uh, to find an agreement on Ukraine uh, where we actually see broad uh, political support. 
But as we started this interview, acknowledging Ukraine needs weapons today, it doesn't even have enough today for what it needs. Uh, and U.S. officials are beginning to uh, acknowledge that 2024 uh, is likely to be a year in which Ukraine just needs to hold the line, and that it's actually 2025 when American weapons come online, when more European weapons come online, and in fact, Ukrainian weapons uh, as well come online, that in the spring of 2025, Ukraine could be able to launch another offensive. Is that how you see it? I will not go into the operational issues. I think it's important that uh, it's for Ukraine uh, to uh, comment uh, on those uh, issues. Uh, uh, then I think it's extremely important also to uh, remember uh, where we started uh, 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 when Russia invaded Ukraine uh, in 2022, February 22. Uh, at that time, most, allies, most experts uh, feared that uh, uh, Ukraine will come under Russian control within uh, weeks and Kiev will uh, uh, be taken by Russia within days. Uh, what we have seen is actually that uh, Ukraine has been able to liberate 50% uh, of the land that uh, Russia controlled in the beginning of the uh, full-fledged war. They have been able to push back the, the, the Russian fleet uh, from the western part of the Black Sea, so they have opened a corridor for export of grain and other commodities. That's extremely impressive and by deep strikes uh, not least with the uh, cruise missiles from the united uh, from the united kingdom and, and france they were able to continue to uh, uh, to inflict heavy losses on the uh, on the on the russian armed forces so so they have achieved a lot uh, and uh, they have demonstrated that the support we provide to them is making a huge, huge difference on the battlefield every day but today, uh, Ukraine has still not found a, a solution for the defenses that Russia has set up, especially in southern Ukraine, right? Wars are unpredictable and wars are difficult. Uh, uh, and no one can uh, say exactly how this war will develop uh, uh, the next year. But what we do know is that uh, the Ukrainians have the courage, the determination to defend their own land. And we also do know that uh, when they get the support from us, they're actually able to inflict heavy losses uh, and, uh, and, and gain uh, also territory in the fight with the invading Russian uh, forces. Um, we need to stand by Ukraine, uh, both in good times, but also in uh, bad times. Uh, we, can only, only, we, can only, we can also only be kind of good weather supporters. Uh, and therefore, uh, I, I count on uh, all allies to continue to support Ukraine, not least because it's in our security interest to ensure that President Putin uh, doesn't win in Ukraine. If he wins, it will embolden him, but also other authoritarian leaders, including in China, uh, to violate international law, law use force. Uh, 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 and we must prevent that from happening uh, by supporting let's, Ukraine. Let's talk about political support for Ukraine. Last summer in Vilnius, NATO members dropped the requirement for Ukraine to complete a membership action plan before it joins NATO. Will there be more concrete measures taken at the summit in Washington in July for NATO's 75th anniversary that will actually send the message to both Kyiv and Moscow that this war will end with Ukraine inside NATO? I cannot preempt the exact conclusions from the Washington summit, but uh, first of all, that will be an important uh, summit. We're going to uh, mark the 75th anniversary of the most successful alliance in history. And I expect that allies will agree further steps to move Ukraine even closer to, uh, to uh, NATO. Ukraine will become a member of this alliance. That has been clearly stated by allies. And we have moved them uh, closer by uh, uh, turning a two-step process into one-step process before they can become a member, uh, which actually shortened uh, the path to mem membership, uh, by establishing something called the NATO-Ukraine Council, where we are deepening the political cooperation, and by helping them to ensure that the Ukrainian armed forces are fully interoperable with NATO forces. All of this is moving uh, uh, NATO, uh, Ukraine closer to NATO, demonstrating that Putin made a big mistake. Uh, he, he, he wanted to control Ukraine, uh, prevent Ukraine from moving towards EU and NATO membership. He's getting exactly the opposite. Ukraine is closer both to EU uh, and NATO than ever before. Sir, let me ask you about a little uh, American politics, uh, if I may. Donald Trump, of course, has won the first two Republican contests uh, in the United States. We, met, we went back to the archive uh, and found this moment from a breakfast you held with the former president in 2018. Germany, as far as I'm concerned, is captive to Russia because it's getting so much of its energy from Russia. Mm. So we're supposed to protect Germany 
but they're getting their energy from Russia. Explain that. And it can't be explained. You know that. My first question is, does that kind of moment bring back thoughts of your relationship with the former president? Well, I am the Secretary General of NATO, uh, responsible for working with uh, uh, 31 allies. Uh, and of course, uh, allies elect different political, uh, uh, select, uh, elect different political uh, leaders. Uh, the strength of this alliance is that despite differences, despite different political parties in, in power in, uh, in, in different countries on both sides of the Atlantic, we have always been able to unite around our core task to protect and defend each other. And I expect that to continue to be the case because it is, it is a great advantage for the United States to have uh, NATO. NATO is important for European security, but NATO is also important for uh, the United States. Uh, together we represent 50% of the world's uh, GDP and 50% of the world's military might, and uh, that makes also the United States stronger. The U.S. is European allies. Some governments are making contingency plans if Donald Trump were to become president again and withdraw from NATO. Is NATO making those contingency plans? I'm confident that the United States will uh, remain uh, a committed NATO allies, uh, ally, uh, because it is in the interest of the United States, not least uh, uh, when they see uh, the size of the military buildup in China and the, and the size of the Chinese uh, economy. Um, I also see broad bipartisan support for uh, NATO uh, in, uh, in the United States. And then uh, when you listen to what former President Trump uh, uh, has stated many times, his, his primary criticism is not about NATO, it's about NATO allies not spending enough on NATO, not investing enough, uh, enough in, uh, on defense. And, and there we have a good story to tell. Uh, over the last years, all allies have increased defense uh, spending. More and more allies meet the guideline of spending 2% of GDP, and in total have added 450 billion US dollars. So, mm, yeah. so, so, di yeah, so different US administrations have called for more defense spending. Uh, they were right, and, uh, and now this is happening. Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary General of NATO, thank you very much. Thank you. The Biden administration is hitting pause on new projects involving the export of an important source of global energy, that's natural gas. While the U.S. is currently the largest exporter of natural gas in the world, the White House argues the climate effects of these projects are just too great to ignore. William Brangham breaks down what it's all about. Jeff, the Biden administration will not approve or even consider any new terminals that export liquefied natural gas, or LNG, until it completes a thorough review of their climate and national security implications. Industry groups criticized the decision, while environmentalists have hailed this as what they say is a key victory in trying to reduce the fossil fuels that are driving climate change. Coral Davenport covers energy and environmental policy for The New York Times. Good to have you back on the program. What are the broader implications of this pause? I mean, natural gas is not going to go away. We still all use it every single day. But especially for the markets where there is such demand for it, given the war in Ukraine, what are the impacts of this? The first thing to remember is this decision comes as the U.S. is the largest natural gas exporter in the world. And still has more of these terminals under construction. Um, U.S. natural gas exports are projected to double over the next four years, given all of the natural gas export terminals that are already being built. Even with this pause? Even with this pause. So that takes you up to about four years out. That means that the U.S. is absolutely dominating the natural gas export market, but you've got these 17 terminals that are awaiting approval. These are the ones that will be halted, paused. This really is a very significant shift. The White House hasn't said that they will be denied, but they are really raising the environmental bar of what it takes. Um, the, the, the U.S. government has never denied uh, a permit to build one of these natural gas export facilities. Now they're saying, we are going to take the climate impact uh, of these into account. And if they if they use a new methodology that finds the climate impact of one of these is too great to approve it, that absolutely could have a long-term systemic effect of maybe not meaning zero natural gas export terminals are ever built, but it could really, you know, beyond five years out, this could be something that we don't see new construction of very much at all anymore. So it's, it's a big deal. 
The industry, as you have reported, is furious about this. They say this is going to cost jobs, raise money for American consumers, uh, that it'll drive up costs. They call this also a win for Russia. Tell us a little bit about more of what their argument is. Their argument is, uh, particularly the, the geopolitical argument, is that the U.S. has successfully used its, its ability as a, as a natural gas exporter to, for example, weaken the power that Vladimir Putin has, that Russia has in cutting off natural gas supplies to Europe. The U.S. has been able to redirect its own natural gas supplies to send it to our allies in Europe, to, to weaken the influence of Russia. That's very powerful. That's, that's sort of the big geopolitical argument. Um, that said, again, I mean, the, the glut of natural gas exports over the next three, four, five years is, is only growing. Um, so that it really kind of depends on what the market looks like beyond five years. And there are some analysts who say we're already reaching a place where these natural gas exports are a glut, hmm. where there's so much production, where there's not as much demand. That said, we don't know what markets are going to look like in the future. The big growth in demand is going to be from Asia. If in the long run, the U.S. is not supplying that growth in Asia. What does that mean for, for sort of long-term geopolitical questions? Um, we don't have answers for those. The environmental community, as you know and have reported, is, is thrilled about this. They're kind of surprised in some way at how fast the Biden administration moved. I wonder if you could give us a sense, does this meaningfully achieve the goals that they all are searching for, which is a reduction in emissions, meaning will this have a, a net impact on our climate emissions? Climate emissions are global um, and they are caused, you know, there are so many forces that influence emissions. Ultimately, economists will tell you that the thing that reduces emissions is reduction in demand. You know, fewer people driving gasoline powered cars, fewer people using um, fossil fuels for electricity. You know, there needs to be sort of a global shift. So will this one specific action change that? No, but it is, it does seem like it will, it has really created a big shift in this one piece of the U.S. fossil fuel picture. I, I would say that, um, you know, we've seen big fights from the environmental group, uh, the, the climate activist community over the last 10 years, um, over the, the Willow project, which mm -hmm. was a big oil project in Alaska. They tried to get Biden to turn that down. He didn't. They, he went ahead and improved it. Keystone Pipeline, they had a victory in stopping one single oil pipeline. This is much bigger mm. than those because this is, this is not one individual project. This is a systemic change. This is a turning of the tide in a really significant way. They got a big win. How much of this was about politics? This was an explicitly political campaign. Um, climate activists um, were very disappointed in President Biden uh, for uh, proceeding with the Willow oil drilling project in Alaska last year. They felt that a lot of young voters um, not necessarily would vote for Donald Trump, but would stay home, uh, would not work to get out the vote. And they explicitly kind of found this issue and found this project, these, these gas export terminals, and said, we want to elevate this on social media, on Instagram and TikTok, and we want to bring it to the president's front door, and we will punish or reward him, the activist's words, based on what he does here. He gave them what they wanted, and they are now preparing to go to swing states and use this as a moment to turn out young voters who, of course, are crucial in this election, the largest voting demographic, um, hoping to bring out a couple more young voters in swing states, specifically in response to this decision. All right, Coral Davenport of The New York Times, thank you so much. Great to be here. The U.S. Senate is nearing a vote on a bipartisan immigration and border deal, but its prospects in the House remain uncertain. That's as Republican lawmakers move closer toward impeaching the Homeland Security Secretary. With us on this Monday are Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter and Tamara Keith of NPR. Happy Monday, as they say. Yes. So let's talk immigration, shall we? President Biden is embracing stricter border measures. He's speaking in support of this emerging border security and immigration deal on the Hill. He's supporting policies that are tougher than the ones he's advocated for in the past. Here's what he said to South Carolina voters over the weekend. It'll also give me as president 
The emergency authorities shut down the border until it could get back under control. If that bill were the law today, I'd shut down the border right now and fix it quickly. So he says he'll, he's willing to shut down the border. At the same time, Donald Trump is trying to tank this agreement, urging the House Speaker Mike Johnson not to support it. Here's what Donald Trump says. A lot of the senators are trying to say respectfully they're blaming it on me. I said, that's OK. Please blame it on me, please, because they were getting ready to pass a very bad bill. And I'll tell you what, a bad bill is I'd rather have no bill than a bad bill. So, Tam, the politics of this are so transparent. I mean, it's a, it, it appears that for Donald Trump, the problem of immigration is more politically useful than an immigration solution. And he's been fairly transparent about saying that. Uh the having an issue that you can beat Joe Biden over the head with for the next 10 months and an issue that independent voters, even many Democratic voters say is a real concern and that Republican voters are off the charts worried about. That is absolutely something that uh, former President Trump wants to be able to have uh, as he campaigns against President Biden. And if somehow through uh, magic that may not exist, a bipartisan deal were reached on immigration and border security that allowed President Biden to take actions and, and you know, actually address this problem that everyone says is a crisis, um, that would be good for President Biden. Uh, that would uh, inoculate him against the charges that he's soft on the border. And, and certainly that's why you're hearing President Biden using that language, saying, I would shut it down right now. He is, he is daring Republicans uh, to, to say, yep, you know, we, we want the issue. We don't want this solution because it's not perfect enough. And Amy, the former president trying to be magnanimous, saying, it's okay, blame me, as if he's not the main one driving the opposition. H how do you see this? Yeah, you know, it seems to me, well, first of all, as... as Tam pointed out, it's not just that Trump wants to talk about this issue for the next few months just because. But if you look at the polling, there was a Wall Street Journal poll out a couple months ago. He's got a 25-point lead over Biden on who do you trust on border security. So, mm -hmm. the, the, again, if we're talking about blatantly political, there, there's your reason right there. I do think, though, there's a difference, and we'll see if this is the case, once we get to November, between border security and immigration. So the issue of border security, there's no doubt that this is a big um, challenge for the administration. This is definitely a weakness for this administration, for this president. But on immigration, you have Donald Trump and those around Donald Trump saying, look, our agenda on immigration is going to be mass deportations. It's mm. going to be setting up detention centers. Uh, we're going to deputize people to be able to go into cities and, and deport uh, citizens. We haven't really had that conversation yet. And that's what I'm curious to see as we, we move from now all through the summer and into the fall, where these two issues, how those two issues are playing off against each other. Let's talk more about 2024, because Nikki Haley says she intends to stay in the race through Super Tuesday. She now says she doesn't necessarily have to win South Carolina, her home state. She only needs to do better than she did in New Hampshire and show that sort of trend line of, of, of improvement. Uh, is she right about that? Mm, uh, she is right that that is her message. Uh, her message coming out of Iowa was that I need to do better in New Hampshire than I did in Iowa. Now she's headed to South Carolina. She's not talking about winning. She's talking about doing better. Um, math does not favor a path where you just do a little bit better along the way. And, and that is because when you get to Super Tuesday, for instance, uh, a state like California, they changed the rules. It used to be you could pick off uh, congressional districts and win some delegates in each congressional, you know, she could win the suburban uh, congressional districts, for instance. Well, now, if someone were to get more than 50%, then it becomes winner take all. And it's quite likely in a two-person race with Republicans voting that Donald Trump, based on what we've seen in the past and, and what we've seen in entrance polling and exit polling, Donald Trump's going to do better than 50%. And so now a state like California with a huge number of delegates on the line, she gets a goose egg. Um, it's really hard to keep competing, trying you know, to win a, this war of attrition to try to build up the delegates. 
if you just don't win. Yeah, that's where the Republican and the Democratic rules are so different. On the Democratic side, as long as you hit a threshold, maybe it was 25%, 30%, you got a certain number of delegates. It's not how it works. On the Republican side, and this is especially true in a state like California, as Tam pointed out, where not only can, if, if, if someone gets 50%, they get basically mm -hmm. all the delegates, but that registered independents do not get to vote in the Republican primary. That's a big state to lose voters who define themselves or are registered as independents because we know that many of those <laughs> voters um, would, would maybe be more open to Nikki Haley. And as we talk about the, the, the obstacles that lay before Nikki Haley, she's also saying that the RNC, in her view, isn't an honest broker, that they're not, they're not playing fair. What, does she, what can she point to to back that up? Ronna McDaniel on television said, well, you know, basically now we need to consolidate. I wish I had the exact quote, but she, she went on television and said Nikki Haley doesn't have a path to the nomination. She's the head of the Republican Party. That, that um, makes to Haley's case that the party isn't staying independent here. A, it, it makes the case for her. Now, Haley can stay in the race as long as she has money to stay in the race. And what she has said is that you know, Donald Trump going out there and, as she described it, being unhinged on New Hampshire primary night and criticizing her dress and everything else, um, all of that has helped her raise small dollar donations. Um, and so she actually has the money to continue going, at least for a while. And she's on a fundraising tour. She's going all across the country this week, mm -hmm. raising funds. Now, it's not enough to really compete in these uh Super Tuesday states like California and Texas, yeah. which costs millions and millions and millions of dollars. But it keeps the campaign, at least the staff and the, the sort of operations going. We've got about a minute left. There's another primary this Saturday. It's the Democrats in That's South right. Carolina. President Biden was there this past weekend. What are you watching for? You know, uh, we know that there are still two other Democrats on the ballot. We've got Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson. Now, Dean Phillips put a lot of effort into New Hampshire to only get somewhere around 20% of the vote. Hasn't put much effort into South Carolina, if any, at all. Let's see what those numbers look like. Um, if indeed, as Phillips said, there, there is an enthusiasm problem, there's a base problem for the president, it would show up in, in that total. Yeah, and obviously watching turnout as well as everything yeah. else. Yeah. Tamara Keith and Amy Walter, thanks so much. You're welcome. Already this year, there have been more than 3,000 firearm deaths in the U.S. That's according to the Gun Violence Archive. William Brangham is back now with a look at a new book that critically examines how America addresses gun violence. In April 2018, a mentally ill white man took an AR-15 into a Nashville Waffle House and shot dead four young people of color. For one researcher at nearby Vanderbilt University, a man who had studied gun violence for years, that shooting prompted a deeper reckoning. Had the various gun control approaches he and others had long championed failed? That researcher is Dr. Jonathan Metzl. He's the director of the Department of Medicine, Health, and Society at Vanderbilt. And his new book is called What We've Become, Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. Dr. Metzl, thank you so much for joining us. Um, the, the key message here in your book is that people who have long fought for better gun control measures, including yourself, things like red flag laws and background checks, that they've been arguing for this public health approach, and you argue that that approach is, is wrong. Can you explain a little bit? Well, I wouldn't say that it's wrong. I will say that I have spent the last five years doing a very deep dive into a very traumatic and racially charged mass shooting that happened here in, in my hometown of Nashville. And, and what I found was that on one hand, I wish, you know, I, I, I'm an advocate for gun laws. I think we need stronger national gun laws. But as I uncovered the before and after of the case and really tracked the story of how not just a mentally ill uh, white man, but a, a naked white man, he walked into the Waffle House naked. How did a guy like that even get a gun? How did he get to the Waffle House in, in South Nashville? And what happened afterwards? 
And as I uncovered that story, I started to realize that a lot of the positions that I had been advocating for, background checks, red flag laws, they're vitally important, but not only would they have not stopped this shooting, but they, for me, spoke to a, the bigger issues that I address in the book about race and violence and guns in America. You mentioned in your book that the, the way we've treated or thought to treat gun violence with campaigns similar to what we did with cigarettes and secondhand smoke or, or with car safety uh, is not effective. Why is that? I tracked the history of that going back to the 90s, and I think at some point it made sense. We had had these campaigns in public health in the past. Um, here is someone whose product is killing people, and we came in as public health ad advocates and experts and said what we need to do is impose government regulation. We need to have common sense laws. We need to hold the manufacturers liable. And that approach worked in cigarettes. It worked in cars for a couple of reasons. One is that ultimately those manufacturers were liable for their products. And the second was that a lot of people across the country had relatives who had died of lung cancer or new people who had died in car wrecks. But unfortunately, as I argue, it was a wrong turn in the gun debate because guns just meant something really different. Gun manufacturers were protected from liability, uh, the kind of liability lawsuits, but also guns really were not amenable to the kind of government databases and regulations that we were advocating because they were tied to the much longer history of the meanings of just who got to carry a gun in America, what that meant, that tied into some of our deepest racial fault lines in, in this country. Um, I know that as part of your research, you talked with a lot of gun owners, people in the South, conservative, Second Amendment, absolutists, as, as one might put them. How do they reckon with this toll of gun violence from homicides to suicides to mass shootings, how do they see this as a problem? For white conservative gun owners, the issue is this. There'll be a mass shooting in this country. Again, they don't want that kind of trauma. But then liberals like me rush in and say, what we need are more government databases or more red flag laws that empower police to put people in front of judges. They hear more regulation, more government. And so really what they hear is, for a lot of the gun owners I spoke to, exactly the reason they own guns in the first place, which is that they feel like they mistrust the government. And so I asked a lot of people in the book, well, how do you think we can resolve this? How can we make, uh, you know, how can we feel, how can we feel safe? And for them, it wasn't more regulation. It was basically improving community structures and improving community safety. And so in the book, I end up being kind of a structuralist and really take seriously, what would it mean to make communities safer? What would it mean to invest in communities and really look at the upstream drivers, not just of gun violence, but the upstream drivers of why people feel like they need to carry guns in public in the first place? Help, help me understand, though, is something that I've, I've often struggled with. You often do see reports of large polling institutions will say, Majorities of Americans, including gun owners, support what we call, quote unquote, common sense gun reforms, the kinds of things you've been talking about in the past. If even gun owners support those things, why do those things have such a difficult time ever getting enacted? I think there's a misnomer in that kind of data. That data is true. Many people do support background checks, red flag laws, stronger gun laws. But that doesn't mean that they vote on those issues. I think that's really the misperception. So if you hear somebody say, I support a red flag law, it's not like they're going to go out if they're a liberal or a Democrat. They're going to vote based on many different things. They might support somebody who, who, who supports climate or the economy or other factors. And the difference really is, historically at least, Republicans vote on gun, gun issues. That has really been the case certainly here in Tennessee and across red state America. And so part of the story is people support those laws, but, but that's different from if they're going to go out and vote. We are, as you well know, entering a year-long presidential race that could not be a more clear delineation in how we ought to approach guns between, the we suspect, the nominee, former President Trump and Joe Biden. Um, how do you imagine that playing out in this year's election? But I do think that shifting popular opinion plus some of the troubles that are happening on the on the very strongly pro-gun side, create an opening for Democrats. Toward the end of the book, 
I discuss an eight-part plan that I think can improve the ways that Democrats talk to red state gun owners that really speaks their language a lot more about gun safety entrepreneurialism, fixing larger structures, addressing the upstream drivers of why people feel like they need to carry guns. Because right now what we have is Trump, who's basically telling red state gun owners, um, I'm going to let you keep your guns and keep your power. And Biden, who's saying, I support regulation, at least for many gun owners, they're going to hear the let me keep my guns and keep my power because it's it's just something that, that's very deep. And, and I think we need to really disrupt that binary. All right. Jonathan Metzl of Vanderbilt University. The book is called What We've Become, Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. The book is out tomorrow. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much. Observances were held across the world over the weekend for the annual International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Fred DeSam Lazaro has the story of one effort to preserve and honor the music performed by prisoners in orchestras that were a fixture in the concentration camps. His report is part of our arts and culture series, Canvas. This is a concert uh, about music and Jewish identity, in particular my own. An unlikely theme, perhaps, in a Minneapolis Lutheran church, but coming just days after October 7th, as violence erupted in the Middle East, violist Kenneth Freed said, a timely one. This is a particularly painful and perilous time for all of us. The works, performed by the Minnesota-based Isles Ensemble, ranged widely, a viola and piano duet of the prayerful Kol Nidre, and various works highlighting Jewish experience and musical influence. The string quartet by Felix Mendelssohn, for instance, with a classic Jewish folk song embedded. Then there was one medley that didn't quite fit in, or did it? Here's how it was introduced. This music you're going to hear is utterly shocking in its banality. Heads up, it's charming cafe music. he added until you realize that it was arranged by members of the orchestra at Auschwitz, performed by prisoners for the entertainment of Nazi SS guards at the camp, guards apparently briefly setting aside their loathing of the prisoner musicians. I, I can't even imagine. Let's put it aside for a Sunday afternoon and we'll pretend that we have this relationship that isn't based on ethnic cleansing. <laughs> Equally jarring, the cheerful, upbeat tempo and titles of these pieces, this tango was called A Dream of Haiti. To provide more context or perspective during their performance, it was punctuated by testimonies from the diaries of the prisoners. This entry was read by cellist Laura Sewell. The smoke from the crematorium really annoyed my colleagues. It was polluting the air, and it was hard to see the notes. It's unimaginable. Some of those quotes, I can't see the notes, but at least I get to play. I mean, I get to live another day, right? And the reason I can't see those notes. And the reason I can't see, because the crematorium is, is you know, bellowing smoke from, from dead Jews. The original manuscripts, the musical arrangements used by the Minnesota Ensemble, reside permanently in the museum at Auschwitz today. But they were first brought out into the world a few years ago here at the University of Michigan School of Music. I mean, I personally could not write a manuscript uh, that is as neat as these are. Oh, I 
Patricia Hall is a professor of music theory. In 2018, she discovered hundreds of manuscripts at the Auschwitz Museum, popular German songs of the 30s and 40s, arranged and adapted by prisoners for the camp orchestras. This prisoner took the time to create this symbol of a bird out of musical symbols. In Nazi death camps, being selected to play music was a much preferred assignment, an alternative to backbreaking labor. Still, it was a precarious existence. There was a particularly sadistic guard at the camp who would take prisoners out of the orchestra and take them to block 11 and shoot them. So there's one anecdote of one of the musicians estimating that up to 50 musicians were executed in this way. Just on a whim of the guard watching them? Yeah, just a whim. You see this number, 5665, and through that number we have this photograph. This is Antony Gargoyle. Hall selected a representative sample of 10, foxtrots, tangos, and waltzes, some with vocals, to reproduce for modern-day performance, trying to stay faithful to how they would have sounded in the camp. With the university ensemble under conductor Oriel Sanz, the music was performed and recorded here in Ann Arbor. I was extremely careful about retaining exactly the, the instrumentation. I thought these pieces were going to sound really quirky. I, I couldn't believe how beautiful they sounded. I was completely surprised. Another surprise, audience reaction. She'd originally planned to simply archive these recordings in the university's music library, figuring they'd be too painful to hear. But Hall says there was strong interest in subsequent concerts, including one at New York's Museum of Jewish Heritage. And it piqued the interest of musicians like Ken Fried and the Isles Ensemble. A lot of people, I think, were, were almost reluctant to, to applaud in a sense. I felt that too, you know, until we stood up and it was like, I guess we should but what are we clapping for here? In the church basement post-concert, Fried saw how the music had taken the audience, as he put it, to a new dimension. I, I, I don't cry, and that stuff from the camps had me in tears. I just have chills. Playing the music would have been one thing, but, but, but really putting those quotes in it, you know, so, so you really did imagine yourself as in the camp. That's kind of the reason I did today's concert. It was to provide context to, because you feel music before you start to th think about it. Music drawn for this concert from the historical breath of Jewish tradition, he said, offered as medicine in a world racked by conflict. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Fred DeSam Lazaro in Minneapolis. And Fred's reporting is a partnership with the Undertold Stories Project at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. And that is the NewsHour for tonight. I'm Jeff Bennett. Thank you for joining us and have a great evening.